At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hi, Dennis O'Hare here in your feed this week with an extra helping of the political breakfast. Now, you may have heard there are primary elections coming up on May 22nd. Georgians in both parties will head to the polls to pick the candidates who will compete to be the state's next governor. And in advance of the primary, I'm sitting down with all of the major party candidates to talk about their visions for the state. So be sure to check your podcast feed on Wednesdays and Fridays. And this is our first interview in the series. It's Democrat Stacey Abrams. She's the former state House minority leader. She was first elected to the House from an Atlanta district back in 2006. And prior to that, she was a deputy Atlanta city attorney. Welcome. Thanks for coming in. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Now, in your campaign, you've called for investments in all sorts of things, from criminal justice reform to early intervention education programs, Medicaid expansion, training for advanced energy jobs, along with some tax incentives for companies that would participate in this. But how are you going to pay for all of that? If you look at our plans, we actually list sources of revenue. I've spent the last seven years as minority leader sitting on the Appropriations Committee, going through the budget line by line with the chair of appropriations. And I know we have the money in Georgia. The question is not, do we have the resources? It's how are we allocating them? And my mission is to reallocate the resources so that we can deliver prosperity for as many Georgians as possible. So where do you cut? You begin by looking at tax loopholes that we already have, but you also look at places where we are spending money within a category. My goal is to shift how we spend those dollars. Okay. Um, What kinds of loopholes are you talking about? There are a number of loopholes, tax credits that we've allocated that are not being appropriately spent, that are not delivering a return on investment. And we know that there are hundreds of millions of dollars in in those buckets. Can you give me an example? No. Why not? Because one of the pieces of how we're going to approach this is having a conversation with the state, having a conversation with the legislature, with the Ways and Means Committee on which I sat, having a conversation with the Senate. But we do know that if you look at bipartisan reports on tax accountability, that these loopholes exist. What I want to do is look at which credits are working, because sometimes it's not that the credit as a a whole isn't successful. It's that we aren't allocating it appropriately or only a small number of people are using it. And so instead of saying that I'm going to wholesale cut an entire line item, my point is that we need to look at how effective – these tax credits are, streamline their application, and reassess and reallocate those resources. In putting this plan together, do you have numbers to estimate how much you could save or reallocate and how much 
those programs that you're trying to institute would cost and whether they'd balance. We do. And so if you look at our plans, every time we release a plan with a number attached, we identify places where we can cut. We talk about the fact that there, for example, for our child care tax credits, about $350 million plus. There are dollars that we are already allocating to these tax loopholes that if you look at how we are allocating these dollars, we can squeeze those dollars and move them into education. But if that's subject to negotiation, would you get as much in savings as you had hoped you would? We may or may not, but that's part of the responsibility of being an effective governor. No one gets everything you want, but the goal of running for office is to explain where you want to be and to be very clear about how you can get there. But as minority leader, I understand very clearly that part of the job is to have conversations with both my party and the opposition party to figure out how much of it we can get. But the larger obligation is to set a very clear goal for what we want. And a child care tax credit that helps families take care of their children is an essential element of education and of economic development. So with all of the costs, not just for new programs, but for things possibly like Medicaid expansion or for the Port of Savannah, should the feds not come through with all the money the state is hoping for, are you saying that we can save and reallocate our way out of this without raising taxes? Right now in the state of Georgia, you cannot raise taxes. We put a cap on our income tax. It's capped at 6% by state Mm -hmm. constitution. Hasn't been changed in ages. Would you push to do that? The top rate is the same for somebody who makes a million dollars a year as it is for somebody who's pretty much middle class. I I agree that we have a flat tax, and I do not agree with our current tax structure. My point is that a few years ago, the state of Georgia passed, citizens of Georgia put a constitutional cap on how much we can raise. We can only go up to 6%. Mm -hmm. But Uh, the governor could propose a constitutional amendment. She could. My point first, though, is that we look at where we are, because I don't intend to wait four years to solve this problem. My goal is to look at what we have already and to make choices based on what's in front of us. And we have sufficient revenue in our state to reallocate and reassess our priorities. So in other words, okay, if you can't, without a great deal of effort, change the income tax structure, you're saying, okay, we wouldn't have to impose a whole bunch of new fees or propose local option sales taxes for things? Local option sales taxes have to be spent on local needs, and so that's not an option for the state. But but here's here's the macro point. The macro point is that the state of Georgia has a budget of roughly $25 billion, give or take a couple of billion dollars a year. Every year we make choices about how we want to spend those dollars. As someone who has sat at the table looking at how we've allocated those dollars, I know we can make better choices. I know that we have tax incentives and tax credits that are not being properly used. I know that we are focusing on priorities that should not be the priorities of the state. And as the next governor, I intend to work in cooperation with the state legislature to reallocate those dollars. But I want every citizen voting to know what my priorities are. And that's why I lay out in very grave detail what it is and how much it will cost. One person's tax loophole is another person's economic incentive. Mm -hmm. So how do you, working with a Republican legislature, say, okay, this is a loophole when they're going to hear from, say, an affected business that says this is going to make it tougher for us to hire people. And that's one of the reasons I don't want to say by broad category, we're going to eliminate X or D commission Y, because there may be a handful or a few hundred companies that are taking advantage. But if we are allocating more, if we are saying it's for 5,000 versus 500, then we are leaving money on the table that can be reallocated and leveraged for better and more effective returns on investment. 
how would you then make sure that the programs to which you reallocate these things are actually working? And how much time do you give them if you're spending that money on them? We know, for example, that early childhood education has a wonderful return on investment, that the cognitive development of our children by age five is 90% complete. And we know from research and study that Georgia has done great work in early childhood education. My point is that we need to amplify what we've done and extend it beyond pre-K and really go from zero to three. We know that when we invest in early childhood education, we reduce harm rates and we increase academic success rates. And so I'm very comfortable that those priorities are going to pay for themselves from the very beginning. Okay, you said you're not happy with the way the current income tax system is structured. There have been efforts by Republicans over the years who've been unhappy with it for different reasons to get rid of it. You have said, flawed as it is, you're going to keep it. Why not say, all right, let's start all over? My approach to taxes is this. We have a tax system that is stable and balanced. And it's one of the reasons the state of Georgia has maintained a triple A credit rating even during the Great Recession. We aren't always going to be happy with what we have, and we should always move towards what we want. But my mission is to talk about where we are and where we can be. And so as the minority leader and as a member of the Ways and Means Committee and a member of the Tax Reform Committee, I blocked the legislation that would have dismantled our tax system and did so proudly with the help of Republicans and Democrats who understood that we could not afford to destabilize our economy. My mission is to, on day one, do the things we need to do to start moving the state forward and to begin conversations with my colleagues on both sides of the aisle about how we make our tax system fairer, broader, and much more comprehensive. But nothing I propose should rely on being able to change the Constitution of Georgia from the beginning. Let's talk about one of the many areas where you have said the state needs to move forward. For instance, you have said the governor should lead a statewide approach to transit. That is not what the current plan in the legislature, as we speak, would do. So why should areas that don't want to pay the high costs of building transit have to pay for it? Transit is not about one individual or a single community. Transit is about our obligation to move people towards jobs, towards their needs, towards the hospitals and the grocery stores they have to get to. If you live in Talbot County right now, there isn't a hospital, there isn't a grocery store. But because of the public transit system in Muskogee County, families can get back and forth. If you're a senior citizen living in Dade County in Georgia, you don't want to be isolated from the rest of your community. Public transit is a necessary part of a transportation infrastructure. And therefore, the state should have the responsibility to set priorities and say, we're going to do this across the state. You do want regional input, regional conversation, and regional investment. But there should never be a community that because the majority doesn't feel that they that the minority is entitled, that they should be able to stop public transit from being a part of the mix. You're going to hear from counties on all sides, from Cobb, which says, look, we want certain conditions met before we even look at this, to DeKalb and Atlanta, which have been investing in MARTA for years and are going to say, we don't want to be overrun by a state authority without a big stake at the table because we've been paying for it. I believe that the state should put a stake at the table. In fact, as minority leader, I helped negotiate putting in more money into public transit than we had ever put in before. And I did so in cooperation with the Republican Party because I understood and they understood that you cannot have a conversation about transportation in Georgia without a concomitant conversation about transit. If you live in Cobb County and the jobs are in Atlanta, or if you live in Gwinnett County and the jobs are in Cobb County, 
You should have the ability to get to the jobs you need. But more than that, we have to be the kind of state that leads on transit because that's how you move low-income families into prosperity. It's how you connect senior citizens to what they need. It's how you help the disabled get around their communities. And so we have to think beyond the parochial nature of what transit has been to how it is is necessary as an innovation and a necessity for a fast-moving state. But if you're a local government that's looking either at heavy rail or rapid rail going through their county without feeling like you even have a say in where it goes. That is not at all what I'm suggesting. What I'm saying is that the state has abdicated its responsibility for decades, and the state has to come to the table with resources. But as someone who served as the minority leader, but also as the deputy city attorney for Atlanta, I strongly believe in local control. If you look at my history in the legislature, I'm one of its staunchest advocates. We can have both local engagement and state investment and achieve our purposes. How do you thread that needle? You thread the needle the way we have on a number of issues. We have regional transit authorities where you have state input and state investment, but the majority of the decisions are made by the local representation. However, you set mandates for what has to be done. So, for example, that local authority can't refuse public transit, but it can decide where it goes and how deep into a community it goes. Can you do that, though, as a governor, a Democratic governor who is going to, in all likelihood for a long time, be working with a Republican legislature which had to struggle to pass even a regional plan with opt-outs. Is that even politically possible? Absolutely. Part of it is the priority that we place on transit, and I'm going to make it a priority. But the other piece is that we've seen the economic harm of lacking access to public transit. If you are a county that lost out to Mercedes or, or Porsche, because you did not have public transit, you understand that real jobs are being lost. And I believe with the right incentives and with the right partnership, local communities will want to be a part of the conversation of public transit. They want to get around. They want to have access. And I'm going to make it possible. How would you pay for it? We would pay for it using the same mechanisms we currently use. We have access to public transit dollars that we can draw down from the federal government, but we are going to ask local counties to pay for it. Can you depend, though, pardon me, can you depend, though, on those federal dollars continuing? Because if you look back to when MARTA started, there was a lot more federal funding available than there is now. And if the current administration does some of what it says it's going to do, there will be even less. So how can you depend on that? Well, I think that our reliance on federal funding has been fairly aggressive. We have more than 11 military bases. We have the Port of Savannah. We rely on federal funding. And I find it a bit interesting that we draw these arbitrary lines about when we're going to depend on it and when we're not. I believe that either we believe we're in partnership with the federal government or we don't. However, the responsibility of the state is to make up the difference when we can't. And the responsibility of local communities is to put in their fair share. And And how do they do that? They do that through the same mechanisms we've seen DeKalb and Fulton County use in the city of Atlanta through SPLOS. Local option sales taxes. But that goes to voters. And back to my original question, if voters in that county don't want to do it, then how do you, the state, make up the difference? I think there are two pieces to this. One is that my goal is going to be that the question is not whether they participate. It's at the level that they participate. Part of the challenge has been we have allowed it to be a whether or not conversation, and that is inappropriate because in those situations, the people who have the least amount of power suffer the greatest amount of harm. 
My mission will be to make certain that all communities participate. They participate at the level they can, and the state will make up the difference because the state has the resources to invest in transit and to invest in transportation. But if you can't raise income taxes, where do you go for the money? You can use bond dollars because a lot of this is about construction. And we have a AAA bond rating because we haven't destabilized our tax system. We have access to federal dollars that the state can draw down that local governments cannot. And we have very successful counties that can participate. And I believe that, of course, we're going to have to stage this based on the availability of resources and the cost of infrastructure. But the fact that we don't have a perfect plan is not a reason not to try. Another area where the costs are going up is in the education system, particularly the state's pension for teachers and employees, which sounds really boring, but the financial costs of that are escalating. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars here. Does the state pension system need to be reformed, and in what way? I do not agree with the notion that we have to substantially reform our state pension system. We made a contract with our educators. We told them we are going to pay you a certain salary, and in, in exchange for your agreement to receive less money, we are going mm. to guarantee you a lifetime pension. But you have experience with Atlanta, which had its own confrontation with public safety workers over pensions, which were continuing to rise. And again, the question came up, not to belabor mm -hmm. the point, where does that money come from? The money exists. The question is priorities. How do we want to allocate those dollars? Because each year that the state has confronted rising pension costs, we have put the resources in. Mm -hmm. And we are going to have to cut in other places until we as a state decide how we want to approach large-scale changes to our tax system. And so going back to an earlier conversation we had, I do believe that long-term we have to look at our tax structure. And that's going to be one of those conversations. The pension challenges facing our um, teacher retirement system, they are important, but they are not imminent. And so we do have time to think through how do we invest? How do we cover the $200 million per year that we have to put in? Because the good thing about our, our teacher pension system is it's one of the most stable in the country. And we do have time to start addressing that, to think about innovative ways to pay for it. But I want to be very clear. The answer is not to break our contract with our teachers, with our educators, and take away what we've guaranteed them for their for their pensions. But can you say to individual taxpayers, okay, if we overhaul our tax structure, you won't feel a net increase coming out of your pocket? I don't think that's the issue. The issue is, will we meet our obligation to our educators, the promises that we've made so that your child would get an education, so that your community could att attract jobs? That's the responsibility we have, because as individual taxpayers, we benefit from a strong educational system, and I'm going to be the leader who makes certain we meet those obligations. You've talked about eliminating cash bail as one part of criminal justice reform. The city of Atlanta has done that. Now, that affects people accused of crimes, but the city of Atlanta has also, and along with others, decriminalized the possession of small amounts of marijuana. Would you push for the legislature to do the same statewide? I would. I believe that decriminalization of marijuana possession is a critical step in criminal justice reform. Often the people who are accused of those crimes tend to be low income, tend to be people of color, and tend to face disproportionate uh, 
criminal charges because of it. It makes it difficult for them to get jobs, difficult for them to be productive members of society, and it does not make our communities safer. But given the composition of the state legislature, again, largely Republican and with a U.S. attorney general who says you really need to crack down on things like marijuana possession as a way of preventing bigger crimes, can you possibly get an idea like that through the legislature? Absolutely. I just watched the legislature for the last three years push hard for marijuana, medical marijuana. We also have- And the man who sponsored it is retiring. Well, he is retiring, but that's because the governor of the state of Georgia did not support his initiative, not because he couldn't get the votes in the House or the Senate. And that's the point. Leadership at the top matters. And as the next governor of Georgia, I can tell you, while it is primarily low-income communities of color that suffer from marijuana possession charges, it affects everyone. And one of the wonderful things I learned at the legislature is that if you get beyond partisanship and start talking to people about their issues, you can usually get change done. I took the lead on kinship care, grandparents raising grandchildren, which was seen often as a low-income black woman's problem. But my co-sponsor, he and I disagreed about a lot of things. But we were able to go to North Georgia and Southeast Georgia and understand that this affects a range of communities. And I think we can do the same thing with criminal justice reform, especially with decriminalization of marijuana possession. And on the subject of medical marijuana, would you push for in-state cultivation of, me of medical marijuana? And would the state have a role in doing that? I think we have to have in-state cultivation because otherwise we are in violation of federal law. We're asking families to risk trafficking violations if we do not do in-state cultivation. But in addition to in-state cultivation, we have to make certain that that in-state cultivation leverages our land-grant colleges and utilizes the agritech expertise that we have in the state of Georgia. We can solve both an economic challenge and a healthcare challenge and an opioid crisis by using in-state cultivation as the approach. On the opioid crisis, would you join other states in suing the manufacturers of some drugs like oxycodone, for instance? I believe that we should pursue every legal remedy to limit access to drugs that should not be coming in simply because it's for a profit motive. But I will say this. We have a larger conversation that we have to have, not only about the opioid crisis and the role that manufacturing companies, that pharmaceutical companies have played. We have to have a broader conversation about substance abuse in the state of Georgia. Because for communities like the one I grew up in, communities like the one I serve, conversations about heroin, about crack, about cocaine, those conversations also have to have the same sense of urgency. Because substance abuse is a challenge that is decimating our communities, and we all should be a part of that conversation. So are you talking about more money for prevention and treatment programs, for instance? Absolutely. Do you know how much? I don't know how much, but I do know that if we accept Medicaid expansion and we draw down the $30 billion to which the state is entitled over the next seven years, we will have the money to build out an infrastructure in the state of Georgia across the state that can address both mental health issues and substance abuse treatment. But you just hinted at one of the opportunities and challenges here because if Congress, under Republican leadership, which may or may not happen in the future, continues to scale back the Affordable Care Act, the state won't be able to depend on those federal dollars that you just talked about. The argument that is made that the potential of the federal government scaling back dollars as a predicate to not taking action is a false narrative. If we believe that, then we shouldn't build roads, we shouldn't have 
um, military bases. We should not engage in any partnership with the federal government. But you there can stop all... building the roads. Once you make a commitment to a population to cover them for insurance, that's a very different thing. And the state would be left having to make up the difference if those dollars aren't there. Well, there are two pieces to this. One is that we're paying for it anyway. The question is, how directly do we pay for it? And are we solving the problem or simply medicating the problem? And right now, we are not even medicating the problem. Georgia has the highest uninsurance rate in the nation. And so we're not even addressing the problem. But we also have incredibly high uncompensated care numbers, meaning we're paying for it anyway. My mission is for us to actually draw down the $30 billion over the next seven years to which we are entitled that can help undergird the, the system and help us build it out. But the other piece of this, and I, th- and I think it's important, you can stop building roads, but you still have to maintain the roads you have. You cannot deepen the Port of Savannah, but you've got to deal with what we've got. We can decommission every military base, but you've got to deal with the fact that we still have to have armed forces. The federal government will participate at the level it's responsible for as long as we hold them accountable. And to not take action because we, it may be hard in the future is not a reason for us not to do the right thing. How can one state hold the federal government accountable? One state won't hold the federal government accountable. Georgia is one of 18 states that isn't participating in expansion of Medicaid. We've got a lot of big friends out there that are waiting for us to join them so that together we can hold this, this federal government accountable. Back to education for a moment. You were part of a bipartisan plan to make changes to the HOPE scholarship program back in 2011. In other mm-hmm. words, it wouldn't cover as much as it did before because it was going through a major financial crunch at the time. As a result, though, you've heard a lot of recipients complain that those whose finances make HOPE the most vital to them can't afford those increased costs. And you've said, well, this, this was as good as we could get at the time, given the political realities. Any regrets about that? Not at all, because I think it's important to understand what happened. The HOPE scholarship was on the brink of collapse. Everyone agreed. The Republican proposal would have eliminated the HOPE scholarship for anyone who did not score high enough on a standardized test. My negotiations, my successful negotiations, preserved pre-K for four-year-olds at a full day, full week, but it also created a second-tier scholarship that allowed every student who qualified for the HOPE scholarship under normal circumstances to still get it. And then we put in place a 1% low-interest loan program that actually covers the difference. It's roughly $1,000 and they can borrow that money at 1% interest over 10 years. And so even for those who have faced some economic challenges, those challenges, I believe, were not insurmountable. However, there were one community of students who were the most hardest hit. Those were technical college students. I debated with the governor's office about that issue. And when we were were not successful in getting everything we wanted, I got remedial courses added back. But when we couldn't get everything, I tasked Stacey Evans and Craig Gordon with going to the governor and seeking out additional legislation. Stacey Evans currently running against you for the Democratic nomination. Craig Gordon, just to clarify, who is a state representative out of Savannah. And together they proposed legislation that did not pass immediately. But a second bill came up that I co-sponsored with Stacey Evans and Earl Earhart. We were able to restore some of the cuts. And then I've co-sponsored with various legislators, including Ms. Evans, additional legislation. But the fundamental thing is this. We were in the midst of an economic recession that was going to cripple access to education. And I did what any good leader does. I saved as many people as possible and got them as much as I could. And then I got to work getting more done. And with all due respect to my opponent, she very grossly mischaracterizes both her role in agreeing with me and working on this because she co-chaired the Preserve Hope Committee that I set up. She 
actually applauded the work that I did. And she worked with me in partnership to help restore the cuts that were ha- that occurred that we couldn't fix in the first round. Could that have happened without either one of you? With I mean, are you minimizing her role is what I'm asking. I, I'm not minimizing her role. In fact, I hold up every single member of the Democratic caucus who participated. She co-chaired the Preserve Georgia, Preserve Hope Scholarship Committee with Representative Nikki Randall from Macon. But here's the thing. I have never mischaracterized what I did. We made cuts because cuts were necessary to save the program. And she and I disagreed in the end about how much had to be done. But I've never once mischaracterized the role she played. But I'm deeply disappointed in how often she mischaracterizes the role that I played and how she diminishes the role that she played in getting us to that point. Very quickly, because we're short of time here. You couldn't, you don't think in retrospect that you could have gotten a needs-based component to that scholarship through because the legislature is looking at that now. So let's be very clear. 2011, Republicans had wiped out every statewide Democrat. They held 112 seats in the House. They held a supermajority in the Senate. The fact that they talked to me was a fairly big coup. (laughs) The fact that we were able to negotiate change was an extraordinary achievement. And the fact that we were able to go back again and again and get things done. But I will point to this. There's an email that was recently released between me and Ms. Evans, where Ms. Evans acknowledges that a need-based aid component in 2011 was not viable. Everyone understood that because the Republicans, not only were they not talking about need-based, they were, they were eliminating even basic merit-based unless it included a standardized test. You meet people at the point of their needs, and you do your very best to get good done. And that's what I did, and I'm very proud of my work. Some very quick thoughts on this one. Florida Governor Rick Scott recently signed a bill to raise the minimum age for firearms purchases in that state to 21. Would you push for that as Georgia governor? I am the only candidate for governor, Democrat or Republican, who is in the legislature who has never received a stamp of approval from the NRA. I believe gun safety is critical. I believe we should raise the age. I believe we should ban assault weapons. I believe we need universal background checks. I believe we Can need more support. Can a state do all of those things, though, Absolutely. without without a legal challenge that says, okay, this you might be able to do as a state, but the U.S. Constitution says you can't do that. I'm a very good lawyer. I'm comfortable with legal challenges. But what I'm not comfortable with is us not tackling gun safety because we're afraid of a lawsuit. That is why I'm the only candidate who's been endorsed by Gabrielle Giffords and Giffords Courage. The new Florida law also allows teachers to be armed if local sheriffs and the local school boards agree. Should local jurisdictions in Georgia be able to make those decisions if the teachers are properly trained? No. We should not be arming our educators. We should be creating opportunities for them to teach, but we should never reduce the likelihood of gun safety in our classrooms. I don't care if you've been trained. If you are a teacher, your job is to teach. If you're an educator, your job is to serve children. It is not to be an armed guard in our classrooms. You can't foresee a circumstance where a teacher who wants to, not forced to, properly trained and equipped, perhaps somebody who had even served in the military, could stop some kind of incident from happening. I believe if we want to protect our children, we should increase the safety of our schools, but the safety of our schools does not require arming our teachers. Your financial documents show that you owe the Internal Revenue Service a total of around $54,000 after you deferred payments in 2015 and 2016, and you're on a repayment plan. Mm -hmm. You also have credit card and student loan debt of around $76,000 and Mm $96,000, respectively. Those figures, right? Correct. Meanwhile, you loaned your campaign $50,000. What would you say to someone who says, 
why not take care of those debts first before you loan your campaign money that you apparently have? I loaned my campaign money because we were in a startup phase, and I knew that we had the ability to raise the money. As the campaign pays me back, I'm applying those dollars to taking care of my debts and my obligations. But is that the responsible or the right thing to do? It absolutely is. I want to be the governor of Georgia. I want to be the leader who understands how real Georgians live. And if we tell people you cannot run for office unless you're a millionaire, then we are telling most Georgians that you don't have a role in leading your state. The responsible thing to do is to make my payments to the IRS, which I have made faithfully. It is to pay down my credit card debt, which I'm doing assiduously. And it's to make certain I'm meeting all of my obligations. Managing your finances doesn't mean you don't have debt. It means that you never shirk your responsibilities and you meet your obligations. And my largest obligation is to my family, to my parents and my 11-year-old niece who my parents are raising, even though they're both retired. And And I take very seriously that obligation. And just to clarify, they lost pretty much everything in Hurricane Katrina, They they lost everything in Hurricane Katrina. They were Methodist ministers. They lost their church. And since that time, they have adopted my niece and are raising her on very meager pensions. So, okay, that talks about the IRS issue. But some of this credit card and student loan debt goes back years. And in the meantime since, you were drawing salaries, depending on what year it was, six figures or over, not every year. But including, if the reporting is correct, more than $177,000 in 2014 as the CEO of the New Georgia Project. Mm-hmm. Someone might ask if you were giving enough priority to repaying the debts and managing your finances responsibly if you had that kind of income. I had that kind of income. I had two elderly parents. My father has cancer. My mother, I believe, during that time was undergoing surgeries. And if you've ever raised children, they're very expensive. I had to pay my responsibilities, my mortgage, my student loans, my daily expenses, and their personal expenses, their health insurance, their medical expenses, their daily expenses, their car, what faith needs. So I have two households for which I am responsible. And if you live in a multi-person household, $177,000 is a fantastic amount of money to be able to make, but it is not inexhaustible. And I have met every one of my obligations, and I continue to do so. One other point on this. You were a minority shareholder in a financial services company that had state contracts during the time you were in the General Assembly. Now, you weren't involved day to day, but however laudable the goals of the company might have been, one of the major questions Democrats nationwide have been trying to raise about the Trump administration has been that of entanglement of business interests Mm -hmm with government responsibilities. Now we're talking about a very different scale here, but is the principle the same? Not at all. We were a financial services company put in place to take advantage of a federal program that was designed to provide access to credit to small businesses. The credit guarantees to which the the companies with which I was connected, those credit guarantees operate the same way as the FDIC does for a bank. And so under that logic, No one should participate in a bank if they are going to receive FDIC guarantees. But this was state contracts. These are not contracts, actually. It's a mischaracterization of the AJC. These were federal dollars that were allocated through the Federal State Small Business Credit Initiative. Those dollars were administered through the state to any financial institution that qualified. Now Account was the most successful participant in this Obama program. We moved millions of dollars and helped more than 2,000 jobs be created or retained. We helped more than 350 businesses. I am extraordinarily proud of the work. But out of an abundance of caution, 
I was not involved with any conversations that had anything to do with the state of Georgia. I was walled off. I talked to the Republican attorney general before we even participated, because even though the letter of the law said I could, the spirit of the law also needed to be met. And I did so and never had a single conversation. And by DCA's admission, the Department of Community Affairs, I was never involved in any conversations. The questions of entanglement that we see with the Trump administration look exclusively at the fact that they are intentionally profiting from work that they are doing. This was a company that was moving money to small businesses that was doing exactly what the federal government intended for us to do, to use an Obama administration program to help small businesses who were being kicked out of the financial system because of the crisis. And unlike some who spent that time helping with mortgage crisis families lose their homes, I spent my time making certain that jobs are created and that families were able to take care of themselves. Two quick final questions. If you win, you will be succeeding a Republican, Governor Nathan Deal. Which efforts that he has undertaken would you continue? In other words, you say, he did a good thing there. I'm going to keep it up. And which ones would you try to reverse? I am extraordinarily proud of the work that Governor Deal has done on criminal justice reform. I've spent seven years working side by side with him on those issues, and I think we have to continue that work. I'm also deeply proud of the work that he helped me do with kinship care, moving resources into those families. I disagree with him wholeheartedly on the immigration legislation that has moved through the legislature, and I disagree with him on how he's addressed reproductive health. We have too many laws that have passed that have unfortunately harmed the ability of women to have access to care, and I would oppose those. So if the bill now in the legislature, which would require local law enforcement to identify authorities if they arrest someone who is here illegally, if that goes through and he signs it, would you immediately try to repeal it or do you spend your political capital elsewhere with a Republican legislature? I would immediately try to repeal it and I would try to defund it because no matter how you are here, you should be under the provenance of the state of Georgia's protection. Immigration is a federal job and I believe that our federal government needs to come to bipartisan solutions on immigration but that we should not be putting anyone who lives under Georgia's protection in the shadows and make them afraid to seek our services. We asked what would happen if you win, and we're going to ask everyone this. If you lose, would you support Stacey Evans for governor of Georgia? I intend to support the Democratic nominee for the state of Georgia, and I intend for that to be Stacey Abrams. That was my recent conversation with Democrat Stacey Abrams. She is running in the May 22nd primary to win her party's nomination for governor. Now make sure to keep an eye on our podcast feed. We've got more interviews like this in the coming weeks. And be sure to check our podcast feed on Wednesdays and Fridays. And don't forget to subscribe for more nourishing conversation all about Georgia politics. And you can do that at your favorite podcast app. I'm Dennis O'Hare. I'll be back in your feed soon with more Political Breakfast. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org. 
Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. 